Daniel chapter 6, page 1304 in the Brown Bibles, and I've asked C to come and give us the reading, so um, when you've found your place, we'll take it from there. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God All man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I want to speak to you a little bit about Daniel. and um, I want to speak to you about three people. One of them is Daniel. And obviously, throughout the narrative of his life that we've encountered, this is many decades later after we first met Daniel, we've discovered a man consistently courageous, consistently godly, consistently able to put up walls of no compromise and live a faithful life in the heart of a very dark city uh, where it must have been so tempting for him to do things that he, he didn't want to do. And we've just been constantly confronted with his amazing character. And so I want to talk a bit about Daniel, because again, we see it here going on in this chapter. I want to talk a little bit about you as well, and just encourage us all to take some inspiration from, from this man. And there's certainly elements in here where you're going to feel something of the challenge of what uh, God is speaking to you about how we need to change. And it's, it has amazed me, if I'm honest, just going through this very, very old book. Um, it's about uh, 2,700 years old. Um, but the human heart doesn't change, and the effect has been, as we looked at these stories, that um, certain among you have just experienced the way that God speaks consistently. And I know some of you have come to me and talked about the ways that God's been changing your life and helping you to make right decisions and so on. I see that as the work of God, as the work of the Spirit. And it's amazed me because um, it shouldn't, but it, it just it always amazes me when we see God work. So I want to talk about Daniel, about you, but I also want us to talk about Jesus today. And um, I don't know if you remember, at the end of, of Luke's gospel, when Jesus has been raised from the dead, uh, not everybody knows that he's, he's alive again. And there's this story where two guys, two of his disciples, are walking uh, towards Emmaus, and they, they, a man comes alongside them, and they don't recognize him. But the man is Jesus, and, and rather than telling them who he is, he just starts leading them in a, in a kind of Bible study off the top of his head. They don't have Bibles in those days, they had scrolls, and you wouldn't carry them around with you. So he obviously knows his scriptures inside out, and it, it says that he started showing them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now he doesn't tell them it's about himself, but he tells them how all of the Old Testament, you know, the, 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 the uh, thousand plus pages that we have in our Bibles... It's all about Jesus and all leading to his life, death, and resurrection. If only you would see all the ways that God was teaching that. Some of it's very clear. Some of it's very opaque and hidden. But it's all there, and the whole thing is about him. And they don't really know it's him until 
until later in the story, after he leaves them and then he appears later on. But they say, they say this thing, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? So they're reading the same passages that they'd read since they were little boys. But suddenly they took on a new light because they were reading it all through the lens of seeing that it's all about Jesus. And suddenly the Bible came alive. It was like going from 2D to 3D. It's like hit them in the face. Of course, it all makes sense. He had to live. He had to die. He had to rise from the dead. Now, when we read this passage here in in Daniel chapter 6, it's Easter. I didn't plan to speak on this passage today in the sense that I was just following the series through. But it just made sense to me to talk a little bit about Christ and the shadows of Christ here, 100, 700 plus years before, he, sorry, 500 plus years before he was even born. And I want to talk to you about three things. The temptation of the righteous, the condemnation of the righteous, and the vindication of the righteous. Temptation, condemnation, vindication. So we'll begin how the story begins with the temptation of the righteous. It seems that the more that you do for God, the more you're going to be tested in life and come under a kind of spiritual attack, if I can put it like that. Daniel is a man who clearly is experiencing the favor of God in extraordinary ways. So again and again we see how he's, um, he's gifted with supernatural giftedness and here it talks about in verse 3 how he became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And I take that to be the fact that the hand of God was on him in an extraordinary way. You see this from time to time, not only in the Bible, but in normal life, that certain people just seem to have the favor of God on them to move them from place to place, to to allow them to have greater responsibility and power because God's hand is upon them in extraordinary ways. And Daniel's one of those guys. And so he lives this incredibly significant life for God. But the more that you do for God and the more like Jesus you are, the more that you become a kind of a target in a spiritual sense, it seems. Because this is the very thing that Jesus, Jesus warned us about in, his, uh, in one of the things he said to his disciples in John chapter 15. He says that um, words to the effect that if, if, uh, if they've persecuted me, then they'll do it to you also. He says, a servant's not greater than his master. Which means to say, if we think of ourselves being in one household where Jesus is the master and we're all part of his household, his family, the more that we, we kind of embody the family vibe and, and kind of look like the master of the household and dress like him and act like him and all these kinds of things, then the more that if they, they've hated Jesus, then they're going to hate you as well. The more you resemble Christ, the more that you're going to be despised. And in fact... You know, he says it's without reason. He says a little bit later on, they hated me without a cause. So it's not because Jesus is just so hateable and horrible and worthy of this sort of um, attack and, and vilification, persecution, all these kinds of things. It's simply because darkness and light are opposed to one another. And the more you as a Christian grow to be someone who lives and embodies a Christ-likeness, the more that, like Jesus, you will experience something of the testing, the temptations, and the attacks that he experienced. 
In fact, I'd push it a bit harder and say, if you desire to live a life for God, I commend that desire. But I also wonder, have you thought twice about what that might entail? You know, Jesus said things like, blessed are you and others persecute you and revile you and speak all kinds of evil against you on account of me. So he was kind of saying, you know, the more that you live on account of him, the more that you're going to be hated. And it's a sad reality, but it's one that's borne out in history and in experience. And it's here in this story, as we look at the life of Daniel, the more godly he is, the more favored by God he is, the more he's hated. And so what happens is, these men, it seems to be out of some kind of envy. You know, whenever somebody is sort of ascending the ranks and getting power, people around them often feel a deep-seated hatred and envy, don't they? There's so much competitiveness in the world, and it seems to be something like that's going on here with a kind of added spiritual dimension that this is a... A spiritual thing. It says that they, they decide, all these other guys, his colleagues really, they decide that they'll not find any ground for complaint against Daniel. It says, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they're trying to find a trap for this man. And they think, there's no way Daniel, of all the people in the kingdom, can be caught out as being you know, a lawbreaker, a criminal, and, and you know, the king's just not going to fire him or hurt him. So they say, the only thing we can possibly do is trip him up based on his faithfulness to God. So they devise this little plot, this little plan. And really it comes down to this for Daniel, the way the test is set up. It comes down to this, whether Daniel is going to value his own safety or his obedience to God. And very often it's the exact same thing that lies in front of us in life, isn't it? Will you value your own well-being and safety and, and sort of the peace that you're enjoying now in life, or will you want to obey God? When those things really come into collision, as they occasionally do, what do you decide to do? Now, if it's easy for Daniel to love and obey God in the easy times. You know, when he's experiencing, you know, as we're singing about, let you be the wind in my sails. When you're the sun on my face, when I'm walking in in the delight of knowing you and experiencing your favor, then as Daniel was encountering that, you know, it's so easy for him to, to walk with God at those moments. But the test always of your character is what happens when things are looking bad for you. What happens when, when these things begin to collide? And the challenge, I think it was even harder for Daniel because it's not like, it's not like his, his religion and his well-being are run into, running into head-on conflict because really... The challenge that's set down for him, you know, that you just don't pray for 30 days. You could have thought that's quite an easy one to duck. Some of us don't pray at all. And all he had to do, you think about it, all he had to do was maybe um, pray in secret, pray under his breath, pray when no one's looking, adjust his routine a little bit. It wasn't that hard for Daniel to avoid being attacked here and and trapped by the trap of these men. And it could have been a simple thing. But instead, what we see of Daniel, as always, is this no compromise, that he's a faithful man. And it comes down to this, that he... We ask the question, well, well, how? Why? Why why, How is he able to stand up amidst the threat of death and be this faithful guy? And I, I just want to underline for you, it's not because he's a rebellious guy. 
I suspect that some of us who don't pray very often might pray a little bit more if prayer was banned. You know, suddenly you'd be up in arms and claiming your right to prayer. Or if you were not allowed to go to church, suddenly you'd be like, oh, I must go to church every Sunday just to make a point or whatever. You know, and, and when things are easy, we take these things for granted, don't they? It's easier for us to ignore and neglect these elements of our spiritual life when nobody's telling us not to do it. Now, was that the kind of thing that's going on with Daniel here, that out of some protest he decides, I'm going to carry on praying? And actually, it's not that at all, because it, he tells us here in verse 10 that he, 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 he carried on praying, and, in these, and it says, as he had done previously. So all we're doing is getting a window into what Daniel's prayer life was like throughout his whole life, I suspect. He's not a rebellious guy. He's not being passive-aggressive. He's just carrying on as he's always done. And so when we ask the question, how is it that Daniel remained faithful? And this is where it gets very pertinent to us. I want to show you a few things about his prayer life that I think might, might help you and provoke you about how he withstood this temptation and remained faithful. Three things about his prayer life that come out in verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, I love this, it's like the first thing he does. It says, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. There's the first thing. Daniel prays towards Jerusalem. Now, I'm not about to stand and advocate that you guys pull out your iPhone compass and figure out where Jerusalem is and adjust your prayer life or we, we somehow rotate our worship service. It's not about that. What this is about is that Daniel, a man who's been ripped out of Jerusalem, the center of spiritual life for a Jewish person, wanted his heart to be fixed on his spiritual home. And so by the very simple act of rotating his body towards that place where he'd experienced the love and grace of God as a young boy, he's able to recall every day, three times a day, that his home is not Babylon, his home is where the temple is. In fact, when the temple had been built, Solomon, who built the temple, in his dedication, said, whenever your people, he's praying to God, he said, whenever your people are taken into exile, they can turn and pray towards the temple and you'll hear their voice. Now for us as Christians, obviously we don't have a physical thing that we pray towards. If you do, it's idolatry, get rid of it, smash it, whatever it is. (laughs) It's not that. It's that it matters the orientation of your heart. If you're a person who habitually meditates on things of this world, then when temptation comes and challenges come your way, your deepest love will always win the day. So if your deepest love is your ambition and a threat comes to your career and you have to choose God or your career, the career will win if it's the thing that you dream about and think about all the time. If your deepest love is a sense of security or to be loved, then if a choice comes between God and a person who loves you and you know that these two things are in conflict, then running after the love that you have will will destroy your love for God. There's something so significant though in Daniel that he, he doesn't let Babylon and his career be his first love. His first love is always Jerusalem, the city of God and the temple and the God who resided there. 
And it reminded me of these verses that we've read so often in Hebrews 12, where it says to us that we should lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So here, again, he's urging us to shun temptation, just as Daniel had to do on this day. Why? And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And he says, how? He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The only way that you can live a consistently godly life is just as Daniel turned towards Jerusalem three times a day to recall his heart's love. It's for you to be a person who turns your heart towards Christ in worship. And so in a kind of metaphorical way, towards the heavenly Jerusalem. A person who has stopped worshipping Jesus is a person who is going to be destroyed and blown around by every temptation that comes your way. But a person who is who makes Christ their first love will be drawn again and again back to him whenever God and this world come into, into smashing conflict. So there's one little insight we get about how he resists temptation. His heart is set on the right place. Here's another one. Do you notice how it tells us that he, he, opened, he got in his, his room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. It says he got down on his knees. Now again, I don't think that we have to exactly copy Daniel because actually throughout the Bible you find people praying in all kinds of postures. Sometimes they pray standing with arms raised. Sometimes they lie on their face in the dirt. Sometimes they just mumble words under their breath as they go around their business because they just have to pray a quick prayer to God. We see see people praying in all kinds of ways and using their bodies in all kinds of ways. But there's a reason I think that Daniel was a man who kneeled. And it has to do with the fact that there he was. Every day he had to go before the king. And no doubt he had to kneel before the king. And so he had to submit in some way to this pagan leader. And not only that, but he was also a man who himself held great power and others bowed to him. And you can imagine that when your allegiance is drawn to earthly things and when people also look to you and you start to think that you're really something... Those two powerful forces in your life can diminish your sense of humility before the living God. So Daniel is a man who very deliberately, day after day and multiple times a day, gets down on his knees before the living God, before Yahweh. Because he wanted, in his bodily action, to to show people that he surrendered to the living God. And you may say to me, well listen... Surely what matters is my heart posture, not what I do with my body. But friends, if ever you find yourself married, try telling that to your spouse when you're withholding affection and love. You say, well, look, it's my heart that matters. I don't have to actually do anything for you or bless you or touch you or be affectionate to you with my body, do I as well? You'll get a slap around the face. Things get sour very quickly. Actually, what you do with your body is of immense importance. Partly because it actually affects your heart. How you use your body actually then begins to mold your heart. Your actions begin to mold your, your, your affections. So for Daniel to, to get on his knees was to try and bend his heart towards God every day. But not only that, but also the way that you, you, you post your body reflects your heart. So it's no use saying My heart is for God, but I'm not going to get down on my knees before him. 
And this is one of the reasons why we, we, we so strongly want to advocate, listen, it matters how we worship. It matters how we use our hands. It matters how we use our voices. It matters because it's not just about your heart. It's about your body. It's about your whole being. Daniel was a man who wanted to conform his whole being in surrender to God. And because he so consistently, day after day after day, said, God, you are the Lord of my life, and I am not. Even though I have power over millions of people, I am not the Lord of my life. He was able in this moment of temptation to remember that God is king and he is not. His heart was set in the right place toward Jerusalem. His body demonstrated submission. Let me show you a third thing about his spiritual life, which gave him the power to resist temptation. His spiritual life was one of, of dependence in this consistent way through the fact that it tells us that he prayed three times a day. Now, I think that Daniel did this deliberately because in the Old Testament law, in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And of course, all people eat at least three times a day. We try to. So here's Daniel. At every mealtime, it's like he's making a statement. My sustenance does not just come from the food that the king gives me. My sustenance comes from praying to God consistently three times a day. And so I want to urge you, friends, it's only through having this consistent habit of posturing your heart toward God, of bending in surrender and of doing it regularly, even multiple times a day, that you can be a person who can meet with challenge and temptation and the, and the desire to compromise and always your faith will smash through rather than you bending to the will of this world. And it reminds me, all of this reminds me of Jesus, who like Daniel, a righteous one, experienced temptations. We read about them in Matthew chapter 4, how the devil met him in the wilderness when he was hungry and fasting. And he experienced the most pressing temptations in that moment for him, to have bread, to turn stones into bread, to to test whether God loved him and to, to bend his knee to Satan so that he could have all the kingdoms of the world given to him in a moment. But Jesus met these temptations and his His faithfulness to God won through in those moments. Why was Jesus tempted? Why did he, like Daniel, experience temptation? Well, for this reason. Well, let me give you two reasons. One is because Jesus had to stay the course and live the life that you and I could not live. He had to experience temptations and win over them so that he could be your representative when he went to the cross. But also, the book of Hebrews tells us, he had to experience temptation so that he could be your sympathetic high priest or representative. If Jesus had never experienced the fires of what temptation feel like, the book of Hebrews leads us to conclude that he wouldn't understand what you feel when you experience temptation and are bending under the weight of it. But because Christ experienced it to the very limit when he won and it broke, He is able to be sympathetic to you in your weakness to remember that you are dust. This is the first little cameo, the first phase in the story in its contour, the temptation of the righteous. Let's move on and think about the second, the condemnation of the righteous. Daniel, though he is innocent, is judged. 
In this story, you see the plotters getting around him, trapping him, and even trapping the king himself. Do you see, did you notice how in the story, Darius doesn't want to kill Daniel? You see it around verses 13 and 14. Darius doesn't want Daniel to be put to death. But the men who are plotting him say, remind him, aren't the laws totally irreversible? And doesn't that mean that you have to kill him and punish him, even though uh, you don't want to? And so he, he admits it, and he says, yes, I have to. And then it says in verse 14 that the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He wanted to find a way to free him, but instead he has to throw him into the den of lions and have him killed. Now all of this again reminds me of the story of Jesus. Do you remember how at his trial, when he's brought up before Pilate, the Roman governor, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the teachers of the law get around Pilate. And Pilate doesn't want to deal with Jesus. He says he wants to have him taken away and just they deal with him. He doesn't want to put him to death. He thinks he's an innocent man. And in fact, his wife has had a dream about Jesus. And she's been so troubled in her sleep that she sent a note to Pilate to say, have nothing to do with this man. It's almost like she felt a reverberation in the spiritual world that something was wrong about this man being on trial. But Pilate finds himself in the same situation as Darius, where he's trapped by the men who are accusing Jesus, just as Darius was trapped by the men accusing Daniel. So in John 19, it says, they say to to Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, it says... He was even more afraid. And it goes on and tells us that from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Just like Darius wanted to release Daniel. But it says, they they cried out and said, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they trap him. And Pilate has to have Jesus put to death, even though he's an innocent man. We see these incredible parallels. Two morally blameless men, Daniel and Jesus, trapped by accusers on all sides and brought before a judge who does not want to condemn them, and then they they still end up being condemned. When innocent people are condemned in this way, we always feel an outrage, don't we? We've been listening to the podcast Serial, and it's an incredible, you don't know whether the, this, this guy who was convicted of murder, true story, Adnan, whether he's guilty or not. But all the time, the narrator, who's this journalist who's investigated his case, is, is, is giving you clues that potentially he was wrongfully convicted. And at the moments when you're most sure that he has to be innocent, even though he's been in jail for 15 years, you feel a sense of swelling outrage. How can this happen to an innocent person? You know, when Nelson Mandela was put in prison for many years, for decades, he wasn't a guiltless man. He'd done things that maybe were somewhat blameworthy, but in the name of justice. But even so, the world got around him and his cause and felt moral outrage that one so, who seemed so, so gentle and so, uh, so guiltless should be condemned and put in prison by a corrupt system in a government that was broken. That's the kind of thing that we're feeling here about Daniel and his situation, about Christ and his situation. But let me, here's the twist in the story. If we were to be brought up before a judge, and particularly before God, 
None of us could complain if we were condemned. Daniel could have protested his innocence. Jesus could have protested his innocence. But if we're brought up on moral charges of our guiltiness and our guiltworthiness, none of us could protest that we are innocent people. Because if we're honest, our consciences confirm that we fall short even of a man like Daniel and his godliness, not to mention fall short of what Jesus has set as the pattern of godliness. So while these two men, it seems, are being condemned though guiltless, we rightfully ought to be condemned though we are guilty. And it brings into sharp focus the reason for which Jesus is condemned when he is sent to the cross. The book of John opens with the account of John the Baptist, who was kind of Jesus' forerunner, the one who would announce his coming. and tells a little story about how Jesus is approaching John one day. And John just occasionally has these kind of prophetic outbursts. He's a preacher. I think he was probably quite loud. And as Jesus is walking towards him, you think this might be quite an awkward situation. He starts shouting. And he, he, Jesus is walking towards him, and he just starts shouting, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wants to get everyone's attention as Jesus is coming to get all eyes fixed on Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a story of the preacher Spurgeon who was one of the most prominent preachers in this country over a century ago. He, he ministered really close here in Elephant and Castle. And Spurgeon one day, because of his popularity as a preacher, he was invited to preach at a special event at the Crystal Palace, which was an actual thing. Uh, before it was a place. It doesn't exist anymore. It was burned down. But it was a structure made of glass that was beautiful and sheltered. And he was to preach to thousands of people inside this building. He went the day before to test the acoustics. And I'd love to have heard his voice. There's no recording. He's just before recordings existed. But Spurgeon that day, testing the acoustics, decided he was going to say that same line. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And somewhere up in one of the rafters, a man was working that day. And he heard the voice echoing in the glassy chamber. And he immediately experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit and was changed on the spot. And and became a Christian. Something about Spurgeon... (laughs) I, it's never happened to me. <laughs> Something about that guy. But anyway, all he was doing was telling the truth about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Now why did John describe him as a lamb? I think that John the Baptist had a glimpse into what Jesus was going to do whilst nobody else could see it. I think he understood something about what Jesus had to do with his life. And in particular, he understood that Jesus would have to die. Something that his own disciples would never come to terms with until after his death and after his resurrection. But John the Baptist, it seems, had a hint in his spirit that this man, his cousin Jesus, would have to die. And maybe he got it from a passage like Isaiah 53 where it's talking prophetically hundreds of years before Christ would come about Jesus and what he would do as the Messiah. And it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 was telling us that Jesus would have to be a sacrificial lamb. 
No one got this. They didn't get that the Messiah would have to die. They, they were blind to it until it happened. But John, it seems, saw it. And of course, all of it rests on the traditions and the rituals that had been instituted in the temple. That every day, blameless, spotless lambs were killed to, to-, to atone for the sins of the people. Their blood was shed so that the people's blood would not be shed by God, who saw their guilt. So that when he saw the blood of the lambs being killed on the altar, he would overlook the sins of the people. And all of it was prefiguring the coming of the final lamb, Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins, not only of himself, not only, he didn't sin, but often people gave their sacrifices for their own sins. He, he behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not only of his people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the entire world, the final sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Which is why in Isaiah, in that same chapter, it says, Surely he, the Lamb, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So just as the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked and it formed this trap that fell upon Daniel and meant that he had to go into the den of lions, so also the law of God that had to be satisfied, the justice that had to be satisfied, fell as a trap upon God's only Son, Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, he's the one who went into the den for us. He went into the den of lions for us. Experienced death, experienced brokenness, experienced spiritual torment. And in those moments, all of it was to satisfy God's wrath against your most shameful acts. The Bible says that he became sin for us. And it doesn't just mean sin in a general sense. It does mean that. But it means the sins that you committed this week. The guilt that is weighing your heart down. The condemnation you feel. The accusations you feel for the wrongs you've done. Jesus bore it upon the cross. Which brings us to our final aspect of this story, the vindication of the righteous. When Darius sends Daniel down into the den of lions, it tells us here in verse 17, it says, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. They would roll the stone over, they would place some kind of wax or plaster seal over it, and then his signet ring would be stamped on it to make sure that if anyone broke it open, they would know about it. They could guarantee that Daniel's definitely in that pit with those beasts. The next verse tells us that the king is in torment after this. He goes home, he can't sleep, it says he fasts all night, which is something most of us do every night. But he spent the night fasting. It says no diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. His his spirit is in agony as he thinks about the innocent man who he has just condemned to death. 
And then the next verse, 19, it says, At the break of day, the king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. I suppose he reasoned in his mind that Daniel had served his sentence. It had been done. And maybe he was lying there dead in the bottom of that pit. But he seemed to have this inkling of hope. Was it faith in God? We don't know. That maybe Daniel's God had, had rescued him. And it just reminded me, the, the elements in that story just reminded me of what happens around the death of Jesus. When Jesus is killed on the cross, and they make sure he's dead, they pierce his heart with a spear, blood and water flow out. His body's taken down, and he's placed in a tomb. He's placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He's absolutely dead. There's no breath in that body. The people who'd sought Jesus' death are getting nervous at this point because they think, well, Jesus talked about rising from the dead. And so there's this possibility that his followers will stage a kind of fake resurrection. So what they do is they go to Pilate and they insist that this tomb be sealed and guards placed upon it. And we're told at the end of Matthew 27, it says he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And went away. Just as Daniel was sealed in the pit, Jesus was sealed in the grave. And then there's the moment of agony that weekend, from Friday to Sunday. Just as Darius had those sleepless that sleepless night, Jesus' disciples were in agony, in pain. I don't think they really expected him to rise from the dead. Sunday comes, the Sabbath's over, and the women whose job it was to go and start embalming the body, rushed down on the first day of the week. And it says, verse, the last verse of 27 of Matthew says that they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And then the next verse says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. It so mirrors, doesn't it, the events of Daniel being sealed and Darius coming and then Jesus being sealed and then the women going to his tomb. We see these parallel stories going on. And in both of them, we experience the same thing. The, the righteous one is vindicated because Daniel is lifted up out of the pit, almost as it were, from death, though he doesn't actually die. But he explains it like this. He says, because I was found blameless, because I'd done no harm, he says. He explains, that's the reason that God preserved my life in that den. And we know about Jesus. It says in Psalm 16 that God would not let his holy one see decay. Jesus being the blameless one, although God allowed all the sins of the world to crush him, to kill him, and to put him in the grave, that God knew because he was truly innocent, he wouldn't leave him in the grave. And like Daniel lifted out of the den, Jesus is lifted out of the grave. And in both of these stories, we see the way God's conquering, vindicating power is then worked out. So for Daniel... Lifted out of the den. The next event is that Darius turns on Daniel's accusers. I think probably he was, 
he felt something, the awe of the God who preserved his life. And he thinks, I've got to deal justice here. And it says in the next verse, in verse 24, that the men who'd maliciously accused Daniel were thrown into the pit with their wives and their children. And all their bones are broken to pieces even before they reach the bottom of the pit. The lions overpower them that quickly. So you see all the dark spiritual forces arrayed against Daniel are crushed even in a moment when Daniel, it seems, is at his weakest. And then we turn into our New Testaments and read about what happened when Jesus went to the cross. We're told that at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So that every spiritual power that despised God and wanted Jesus dead at the cross was in a twist of irony crushed by Jesus dying there. And perhaps the greatest enemy of all that experienced that defeat was death itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's almost like a taunt, the words, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If you imagine that death is the greatest enemy to the plans of God, and death sought to capture and destroy God's son, Jesus, on the cross, and seem for a moment to have the upper hand, the victory, because Jesus is dead, and he's in the grave, and he's gone. But somehow, like when a bee stings you, leaves its sting in you, and its whole abdomen is wrenched from its body, and then the bee just dies, death exhausted itself when it killed Jesus. While Christ lay in the grave crushed by death, he could not be held there, and God lifted him up from the grave so that death could never hold you either. The enemies of Christ are thrown into the pit. And even though we haven't yet seen that in its completion, just as Daniel's enemies were killed, I believe that all the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. And there'll be a day when death itself will no longer have any power. And we live forever. The story ends with a dramatic turn as Darius, so overwhelmed with the extraordinary reality of Daniel's God, becomes an evangelist for the God that he never believed in. And he starts writing to all the people in his kingdom, all the peoples and nations, it says, and languages that dwell on the earth. And it says, he makes a decree that people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And here's why I just want to end as we move into a time of communion and worship. When I read this story, I don't think the point is so much that you and I are meant to be Daniel. Daniel. 
I think the point is rather that we're more like Darius. We're the, the guilty, conflicted one in the story who witnesses the death and the resurrection. And we have witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, and its life-changing power has touched us. And like, Daniel, sorry, like Darius, we are called to now be the preachers of these events that have changed the world. No one can look at life in the same way anymore because of what happened to Jesus. Because he was laid in the grave and because of the fact that he was risen from the dead. Everything changed in his disciples' lives from that moment. And the ripple effects began to touch other people. And they've continued pulsating through history, transforming lives ever since. And friends, we, like Darius, are called to announce that he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Imagine these words are being said about Jesus. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions.